You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. A single ant ain't so brainy, but a colony, well, it gets things done. Scientists are building robots modeled on swarm behavior, but will they stay under human control or will we someday be at the mercy of our machine overlords? Also, new research that says you're not in control, your gut microbes are, determining what you eat and how you feel. It's who's controlling whom on Big Picture Science. Life is survival of the fittest, and to be the fittest, you need to master your environment. We spend a lot of time trying to do just that. Come on, honey. Time for bed. No, time for running. (laughs) No, time for bed. Time to toss kitty. This tug of war can be relentless when it's between biological beings, but it's not much easier when carbon-based intelligence squares off against silicon-based. Okay, Siri, what's the closest Mexican restaurant? Okay, here's Mix It Again and Trot. Dance class. No, Mexican restaurant. Cannot find hexagon restraint. No, tacos, enchiladas, salsa. God. Staccatos and chilled salad gone. You... I'm sorry, I can't find bleep. Well, it's frustrating not to be in control, but sometimes losing control doesn't just feel like you're losing your mind. You are losing your mind. A particular kind of fungus can hijack the brain of an ant, for example, and it doesn't end well for the ant. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak, and welcome to Big Picture Science, where we step back to get a wide-angle view on science and technology, where it's been, where it's going. In this hour, you may be surprised to learn who's holding the reins. For ants, sometimes it's a fungus. When it's robots, well, we hope it's always us, but as these machines become Mensa marvels, they might slip the bonds of human control. And who makes the decisions about dinner in your household? Scientists say it may not be you or your spouse, but your gut microbes, tiny puppeteers who instruct us on what to eat and even how to feel. That idea kind of bugs me. It's who's controlling whom. It's a dog-eat-dog world, unless you're on a picnic and then it's an ant-eat-chicken-salad world. Ants are pests. 
But at least all they try to eat is your lunch, not your brain, for example. The ant, not as fortunate. Certain species are vulnerable to infection by a parasite, a, a kind of fungus, that produces a cocktail of chemicals that hijack the ant's brain and turn the insect into a zombie. Also, the fungus can reproduce and do it all again. One of the lead researchers into the biological mechanism of insect zombification is David Hughes. He's a biologist and entomologist at Penn State University. David, it's hardly remarkable to note that species will frequently control other species for their own ends. I mean, something like 8,000 years ago, we domesticated cattle with the intention of using them for steaks, after all. But the manipulation of ants by a type of fungus is truly macabre. Let's meet this, uh, this diabolical agent, which is affecting the ants. It's a fungus, and that's really a plant, right? A fungus is not, in fact, a plant. Uh, fungi are more closely related to animals than they are to plants. It's a common misconception. And fungi are considered to be microorganisms, so typically single-celled organisms. But fungi, as everybody who's eaten a mushroom knows, can grow very large. So in this case, what the fungal cells do is that they aggregate and they form larger structures, and they actually have a division of labor. So they straddle the boundary between microorganisms and multicellular organisms. All right, so how do these fungi infect an ant? So this is a really interesting uh, evolutionary dance between the fungus and the ant. We've established that the fungus is unable to transmit inside the ant's colony. And so the fungus transmits outside the nest. So when ants are foraging, they walk on the forest floor, typically in rainforests where we study this, and they walk over a patch of fungal spores. The spores adhere to the ant's cuticle or skin, and then over a period of maybe 12 to 18 hours, burrow their way through the cuticle and into the body, by which time the ant is back inside its nest. And the fungus grows inside the ant's body while the ant is in the nest, and that happens for about two or three weeks. But the fungus must then transmit, and it cannot transmit inside the nest. So this is where the mind control comes in. The ant is instructed to leave the colony and to go and die outside the colony. Okay, it's instructed. I mean, this fungus isn't talking to these ants in any way that we would regard as talking. How is it doing that? How does it instruct the ant to leave the colony? In nature, much of the communication is chemical. So these fungi produce chemical uh, messengers which interact with the nervous system of the ant. These fungi are the same group of fungi from which we originally derived LSD and tranquilizer ketamine. So fungi are well known for their ability to affect behavior. This happens every time you have a glass of wine. So this ant, this infected ant, he's gone back to the hive to join his fellow hive ants, and suddenly bad chemicals in its body causes it to to walk outside and, and, and then do what? They go outside and then, then they die because the fungus must grow from the body of the dead ant. And it doesn't die in any old location. It dies firmly attached to the underside of a leaf or twig, biting deep into the leaf or twig tissue. And these leaves and twigs are close to where the fungus will eventually be able to target new ants by producing spore from its dead host. So once the ant bites into the leaf, the fungus grows a large stalk from the back of the head. This stalk shoots spores which land on foraging ants. So this ant leaves the nest, it climbs up to some leaf that isn't too far above the the forest floor there. It Mm. bites into the leaf, what, with a death bite? 
Yeah, it's a, it's called a debt grip. We in fact found a fossil of this from 49 million years ago from Germany, which at the time was a tropical rainforest. And so we were able to establish that this debt grip behavior has been happening for at least 50 million years. Okay, so th this is an old technique. And, and once it has the ant biting into the vein, does it do that for any particular purpose or is it only to make sure that the ant stays in place? It's to make sure it stays in place. In order to grow, which takes many, many days, weeks, and sometimes months, the fungus needs a stable platform. And using the ant mandibles ensures it can get such a platform. Okay, so we got this dead ant with this death grip of its jaw onto the leaf, and then the spore kills the ant, presumably by essentially just eating it up from the inside? Yes, at that stage, it's not just a spore anymore, but the ant is filled with many, many thousands of little, what are called blastospores, small parts of the fungus. You can think of it like a yeast growing inside the ant's body, producing the chemicals which have controlled this behavior. All right, and then it exits the ant somehow. It produces something that's going to produce more seeds that can drop back down. Yeah, and this is a really beautiful part. There we see the fungi switching to having a coordinated growth. They grow this long stalk from the back of the ant's head, and the end of this stalk produces a body which produces spores, and these are shot down onto the forest floor each evening, and the cycle continues anew. It infects new ants. Yeah. All right. Well, now, uh, the evolutionary motivation for all this is simply reproduction, right? I mean, that, that's what's going on here. This is just the way the fungus makes more fungus. Exactly. This is a very specific process, right? I mean, they don't target any kind of ant. Uh, the, the chemicals that they use to take over the ant's brain are specific to one species of ant. Yes, indeed. We're, we're actually describing many new species um, from Brazil, and we're finding that there seems to be a rule, one ant, one fungal species. And uh, sort of back-of-the-envelope calculations is showing there could be as many as 800 species of this brain-manipulating fungus yet to be described. So <laughs> I, I don't quite understand why the ants haven't developed a resistance to this. Wouldn't you think that by this time the ants would have evolved a defense? You would think so. But think about what the colony is. The colony is a collection of thousands of individuals, all the daughter of a single queen. Most of those individuals stay inside the nest, and only a few individuals, the older females of the colony, go out to forage. And the fungus only attacks them because it can only transmit outside the nest. So the ones which are being picked off are the old females, which are likely to die anyway of old age. So there may not be a very high evolutionary pressure upon the colony to evolve resistance against this fungus if it's only taking out 1% or 2% of the colony. But think about it from a parasite's perspective. If the parasite fails to find its host, it goes extinct. If the ant colony loses 1% or 2% of its members to a parasite, it doesn't decline or go extinct. So the evolutionary pressures on the parasite are greater. Uh, we can think of this as running for your life or running for your dinner. If you're running for your dinner, you run fast. If you're running for your life, you run faster. <laughs> are there any other dramatic examples of this kind of control of one species by another in nature? There's a very beautiful example, which is very well studied, called Toxoplasma gondii. It's a single-celled organism, so similar to the fungi we look at, and it's related to the malarial parasite. And its normal cycle is to infect rats. 
and it goes from being in a rat to being inside a cat. This is a difficult transition to make because rats are normally afraid of cats. What this parasite does by living inside the rat's brain is it changes its amygdala, a portion of its brain. In fact, causing the rat not only to lose fear of the cat, but actually to become sexually attracted to the smell of cats. And so what happens is the rat approaches the cat and gets eaten and the parasite is in a broad sense, happy in having achieved the desire to go from one organism, the rat, into the cat. David Hughes, thank you so very much for speaking with us today. My pleasure, Seth. David Hughes is a biologist and entomologist at Penn State University. Well, it's an amazing example of biology hijacking biology, and I, for one, wouldn't want to come across one of those ant zombies. I got a weird feeling. Is it the creepy music? Oh, no. What's that dark thing moving on the sidewalk? Where? Oh, it's some kind of a mass. It's it's a colony of zombie ants. They're marching this way. Their glassy compound eyes are unfocused right on us. They want to eat our brains. They're blocking our path. They're hideous. They're They're taking their time, aren't they? Yeah, they're not very speedy. But when the zombie ants do get here... We're goners. And here they come. No, wait, they're veering to the left. There's an apple core on the sidewalk. They're ravenous. Our brains are their next meal any moment now. So did you catch the Fellini documentary at the film archive? It was good. The charoscuro shading added urgency to his artistic question, but the existential ennui of the music kind of left me empty. I know, totally. Oh no, the zombie ants are here. They're getting close to your shoes. Oh, the humanity. Oh, the formicity. Oh, the... Oh. So, want to get a bite to eat? Sure, I know a great Mexican restaurant. Swarm insects can be pretty dumb individually, but highly effective as a group. That's why they're one model for the next generation of robots. Which is fine, as long as they always do our bidding. But will they? Building swarm robots and getting machines to behave next. It's who's controlling whom on Big Picture Science. A single ant ain't no Beethoven. Even a colony of ants can't write a symphony. But collectively, ants can be effective engineers, architects, warriors. Ants exhibit complex organizational skills when they work as a group. And some human engineers are inspired by biological swarm behavior. My name is Mike Rubenstein. I'm a roboticist at Harvard University. So I'm interested in controlling and building large groups of robots. As in thousands. His Kilobot project at the university's self-organizing systems research group has the goal of building a small, low-cost robot that will work with hundreds or even thousands of its kind. One day, these robots might shape themselves instantly into tools or perform tasks that are completed most effectively as a group. But for now, these small oval disks on stilts are still learning how to self-organize. Mike, I live in California, and there's a lot of organizing in the groups going on in this state. Some of those groups more effective than others. But when you talk about self-organization in terms of robots, what do, what do you mean by that? So, I mean, how do you get lots of simple individual robots to work together to complete a global task? So, for example, the work I did recently was how do you get a bunch of little robots to form a shape? To form a shape? You mean to uh, arrange themselves like a marching band? 
Yeah, so we draw a shape in the computer, give it to all the robots, and have them form that shape with their bodies. So the point is they're doing some sort of joint task, kind of like ants, bees, maybe the cells in my liver. I don't know. Uh, so so they're, they're all doing the same job, whatever that job is. Yeah, so they all have the same program running on each robot, and they take turns and decide where they should be in the shape of the object they're trying to form. Okay, you call the latest incarnation of these team robots, you call them kilobots. Uh, can you describe one of the individual members? What? Here, here give me a single kilobot. Tell me sure. what it is. So each robot is about an inch tall. They have these three metal legs that hold them off the table, and their body is made of a circuit board and a battery. And, and how big are they across? Uh, they're about three centimeters across. So a little over an inch? Yeah, about a, a little bigger than a quarter. And, and, and they have legs on the bottom? Is that how they move? Uh, that just holds them off the table. They move using uh, vibration motors, and the way that works is that if you've ever seen your cell phone vibrate when it's on a table, it slides along the table a little bit. We use the same principle for this robot. If you turn one motor on, it spins in one direction. You turn the other on, it spins the other direction. You turn them both on, it goes straight. All right. What else have they got? I mean, this, this gives them mobility, but they need, I don't know, they probably need sensors. Yeah, so they have one sensor, which allows them to talk to their neighbors. So the way the sensor works is that the sensor is facing downward, and they bounce infrared light off the table below them. And any neighbor that's nearby receives that message and can measure how far away they are by seeing how bright the message was. Okay, so they have sort of like a optical cat's whiskers in a way, so they know how far it is to the next guy. Right. Okay, and what about a brain? Have they got a brain? They have a little microcontroller on board. It's a very simple computer, much simpler than what you'd find in your cell phone. And they're called kilobots because I guess you made a 1,000 of them. Made a 1,024, and <laughs> like a kilobyte, we made a kilo of bots. All right, so you've got 1024 of these little bots down there. How do you tell them what to do? So I guess the high-level idea is that we draw whatever shape we want them to form in, on a computer, and we send that to all the robots at once using an infrared communication system. And the way this works is it sends a message to all the robots at once using the same infrared messaging that they use to talk to each other. So you can say, here's the shape I want you to form, and everyone start forming the, the shape at once. Give me an example of the kind of forms you've sent to them. Uh, we've done the letter K for a kilobot. We've done a starfish, a wrench. So once you give them their instructions, you tell them, we want you to form this star on the table here. Is it just hands off, or do you have to keep them apprised of how well they're doing, you know, in case they're making a mistake or something? It's completely hands off. So I hit the play button, and, you know, they start running their program. What, what does it look like? How fast are these guys moving? I mean, is this, is this slow speed action, or do they shape up within a minute or something? It's pretty slow. It's painfully slow to watch. So some of the bigger shapes that I formed took 12 hours to form. And that's because each robot moves at about a centimeter a second. And they kind of take turns forming the shape. So not all the robots are moving at once. I see. So why, I mean, succinctly, why do we want robots that organize and work as a group here? I mean, what's the intention here? I can understand big robots that look like humans that might help me uh, at home or something like that, but why would I want a robot swarm? So you can think of these robots as cells, like robotic cells. So if you think of a person, they're not actually a single thing. They're, you know, trillions of cells that are working together to form this individual. And if you can have robot cells work together to form, you know, an individual robot, then you can start to have some of the interesting capabilities that biological systems have. So, you know, if any of your individual cells die, you don't die as a whole. You know, you don't really depend on how many cells you have in your body. And it would be the same thing with this robot that was made of robot cells. So you start to gain some extra capabilities that you don't with a standard robot.
Can you give me some examples of the kinds of things that uh, eventually swarm robots might be able to do? Yeah, so you can imagine you have a group of robots that are acting as a single individual, and they see two tasks in the environment that they want to form. And a normal robot would have to do task A and then do task B, but this robot could split into two individuals and do the tasks in parallel and come back together. So it can change its shape, it can change its size, it can change how it behaves in the environment. So these could eventually evolve into some sort of general purpose swarm robot. Right, yeah. So one example is programmable matter. It's kind of like a 3D printer, but instead of printing objects with plastic filaments, you're printing with robots. So you can type a shape in the computer, and you know you have a box full of millions of sand-sized robots, and you reach inside and you pull out the tool that you want. And then whenever you're done with that tool, you can put it back, and it can fall apart, and you could reprogram it. So this is useful for, for example, if you go to Mars, you want to have all the tools that you would need when you get there, if there's something wrong with your spacecraft or with your rover or something. And weight is very expensive, so you can't send all the possible tools that you'd want. Instead, if you sent a small box, like the size of a shoebox, and you could form any tool that you'd want, it'd definitely save a lot of space and weight for the spacecraft. Maybe you could explain the motivation for looking to biology as an inspiration for technology. If you look at ants, for example, you have army ants that can work together in the environment to form shapes so they can form bridges to help them cross gaps that no individual ant could cross on their own. They can form nests that protect them from the environment. So... By working together, these ants accomplish a goal that none of the individuals could do. And that's something that would be very exciting for us to do if we could do with robots. Mike, uh, do you ever worry about the fact that, uh, you know, this research, maybe 50 years down the line, may produce swarms that, I don't know, it sounds like Michael Crichton, but swarms that are not necessarily so friendly to us? You know, any technology you're building can be dual purpose. So there's lots of examples of how you could use this technology for good. And that's kind of what we're interested at this point. Mike Rubenstein, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Mike Rubenstein works in the Self-Organizing Systems Research Group at Harvard University. Of course, there are lots of examples of how you can use robot technology for good, and that's what he says he's interested in. But how do we define good and bad behavior in a robot? Because one day these silicon sentients may need to make moral decisions on their own. So how do we maintain control of the machines we build? Machines reflect what we put into them. If we want advanced machines, whether they be robots or just thinking computers, well, if we want them to exhibit moral behavior, we first have to define what moral behavior is. So machines are already engaged in what you might call ethical or moral behavior. They just happen to be the values of the operators or the companies that produce the machines. That's all fine when humans remain in the loop. But if we build machines clever enough to design their own successors, and this technology is on the horizon, and their successors are smarter than they are, and they design their successors and so on, well, then humans gradually cede control to computers who will make their own decisions. But what we're really talking about here is machines that get into situations where the designers can't always predict what they will or will not do. And the decisions that matter the most and that are also the trickiest to program involve morality, says Yale University bioethicist Wendell Wallach. He says, we want to program our machines, or have them program themselves, to make the appropriate moral decisions when presented with new situations, because some of those situations will involve life or death. We can think about all of this with a class of illustrative problems called trolley cases. 
Well, the famous trolley cases are largely about what action should be taken if you have to make a choice between saving five lives and one life. So the classic one is you throw a switch for a trolley if that will save the lives of five workers down the track but kill somebody else on the alternative track that the trolley moves toward. And most people will throw that switch. To save the lives of five workers, you sacrifice the life of one individual on the other track. And all you had to do was pull a switch. But what if you had to be the direct agent in that person's demise in order to save the five lives? Let's return to the trolley or the train. It's now passing under a bridge. There are five workers on the tracks about to be hit. You see a fat man on the bridge, and he's large enough that if you heave him off the bridge and onto the path of the approaching train, you'll stop it and you'll save the workers. Sacrifice one man, save five others. But most people will not push, for example, a large man off a bridge, which would totally lead to that individual's death by a train coming down the track, even if that would save the lives of five people further down the track. The trolley dilemma is a classic thought experiment in ethical decision-making. In numerical terms, the situations are identical. One person is sacrificed, five others are saved. And yet, most people can't commit murder. But what if future moral choices are not made by people? So let's just consider in that fanciful situation that it's not a human standing on the bridge beside this large man, but it's a robot. What would you want that robot to do? And can we program it to do it? If our machines become autonomous decision-makers, says Wendell Wallach, we'll want to think now about how they'll make those moral decisions. And it's not easy. For example, there's no generally accepted correct answer to the trolley question. So most people actually will not push a human off the bridge, even if that means saving five lives for one life. But if you are what's called a utilitarian or a consequentialist where you want the greatest good for the greatest number, then perhaps a robot should push that man off the bridge. This is already sounding a little bit nebulous. Now, problems with trolleys probably don't occur that often and maybe aren't quite so important, but as we move towards autonomous warfare, you know, fighting robots, drones, dealing with this problem of making the right choice becomes more urgent, doesn't it? I mean, we we are talking life and death. We're definitely talking life and death, and that's a very serious concern even about whether or not robots should be making decisions about killing human beings. There's already a large movement, a stop-killer-robot movement, which is really focused on getting international restrictions on what robots can and cannot do in warfare. But if I might suggest, trolley-like problems are not totally fanciful. Think about a a Google car, a self-driving car. Patrick Lynn, a technology ethicist at Cal Poly, has presented a case of what a Google car should do if it encountered a situation where it might either kill two pedestrians or it could, for example, drive off a bridge and kill the driver. Now, most of us might not be very happy if that car decided to kill us rather than the two pedestrians, but perhaps it should be designed so it would kill us rather than two pedestrians. You know, it seems that the default solution to these kinds of problems is always to have a human 
behind the big red button. You, you know what I mean by that. That's what we do for our ICBM missiles. We don't have, you know, a computer deciding whether to launch the rockets. There's always a, you know, red telephone or whatever, and somebody with a switch and, and the president or some human makes the decision. But, of course, that means the decision-making will always be slow. Well, I think there are two points here. One is I, I do believe we're going down a very dangerous path if we start turning over decision-makings to machines in a way that exempts humans from being responsible and culpably liable for the actions of the machines. So perhaps we don't want to go down that road at all and shouldn't go that, down that road even if it slows down many actions or processes that machines can do. On the other hand, there are countless situations in which the machines can more or less take the actions that most of us think are the appropriate actions to take. And to the extent that we can do that, perhaps we can turn more and more tasks over to robots. I have to ask, you know, humans aren't so reliable as moral decision makers themselves. Well, I think we get very we get into a kind of a difficult area here because oftentimes when we talk about morality and ethics, we either talk about the areas in which we disagree fiercely, such as abortion, or we talk about areas in which humans are very fallible. But there are many situations in which we more or less agree what the appropriate behavior is. And in those situations, we can probably find methods to get the robots to act appropriately. So you're optimistic. I mean, I question whether we can ever really solve this problem. The problem being, here I've got some computer, maybe it's even in the cranium of a robot, I mean, one way or the other, and I feed it all this information from sensors, cameras, microphones, whatever, and will I ever feel confident it will take action that I would approve of, or do I just accept that 10 or 20 percent of the time it will not behave the way I would have wanted it to behave? And that may not be acceptable. You know, so that's part of what we really have to discuss as we turn over more and more tasks to computers. If, we, if they can't make appropriate decisions, if they can't factor values and laws into their choices and actions, then there are going to be a lot of calls to restrict the use of robotic devices. Now, in some sense, Wendell, uh, the whole question of moral behavior from our robots is, I mean, it's a fun thing to think about, but... It may be more than a fun thing to think about rather quickly. When I talk to people who do artificial intelligence research, quite a few of them seem to think that we'll be constructing thinking machines just as cognitively clever as humans within several decades. Do you, do you agree with that? Um, I'm what's called your friendly skeptic, and my skepticism has to do with how sophisticated we think the, the thinking will be and when we think that will be realized. So there's everything from people who think that we will have conscious machines that are superior to us in 20 to 30 years and others who believe that won't happen for hundreds of years or never. I just happen to fall within the group that says it's a much more difficult challenge than is usually recognized, and moral decision-making is a good test of whether the machine really can think and can really act appropriately. Okay. Well, it does seem to me that while we might be able to instill, which is to say program, moral behavior into the first generation of thinking machines— I expect that just about the first thing you'd ask one of those things is to design a machine better than you. And then we'd build that machine. And then we'd ask it to design something better than you. And pretty soon, we have some gosh darn smart machines, but we've lost control of how they operate, right? 
Well, we have, and that's the great fear that we create a machine that's intelligent enough that it becomes superior in ways where there's an intelligence explosion and it's far superior to humans and therefore could potentially be dangerous for us. Uh, I think we're a long ways away from that particular juncture. But in the meantime, we do have to monitor very carefully which technologies we we introduce into artificial intelligence and whether they are truly manageable or if they aren't, whether we should be taking a course to restrict their use or to restrict even their development. Okay. Well, bear with me here, but look down the pike. You know, hundreds of years, you say, might even be thousands of years, whatever. We finally developed a truly thinking machine, strong AI. Would these machines have their own morality, or would they be strictly Darwinian? They would just make decisions based on their own survival, and they wouldn't treat us with any more care than I treat the ants in my backyard. Well, I don't have any way of making any assessment of how they will or will not act. But the fact is humans have evolved with a certain degree of morality, and though we are flawed in so many ways, we function fairly decently with each other, and perhaps we're learning to, to improve that. So there's always a prospect that the same can happen with the learning machines that we create, that making safe, ethical, moral decisions is also part of what they perceive as integral to their own intelligence. Well, finally, Wendell. Clearly, there are a number of things to worry about here if you're the worrying type. So what do you think? Should we continue down this path? Should we continue to build what may become our successors? Well, should is, should is one kind of a word. I see that we are. We will. There's not much I or you can do to stop it. But I do believe that if we are vigilant in monitoring the developments, there will be opportunities, there will be inflection points to shape the future and perhaps even arrest or dramatically slow the development of artificial intelligence if it seems to be beyond our ability to manage it. Wendell Wallach, thank you so very much for being with us today. Thank you, Seth. Wendell Wallach is a bioethicist and chair of the Technology and Ethics Study Group at Yale University's Interdisciplinary Center for Bioethics. Well, the whole idea of moral behavior by robots is not new. Isaac Asimov had his three laws of robotics, and the, the first law was don't injure a person, don't hurt them. The second law was you have to obey people unless they tell you to injure somebody. And the third, do you remember the third law? That robots shouldn't harm other robots? Well, very close. They have to protect their own existence unless, of course, that violates A or B. Now, you can see, and we heard, that once you have military robots, they're going to they're gonna violate these things straight out. Their job is to go kill and hurt people. So right away, we've got a problem there. But wouldn't these future machines have to be sentient or they'd have to be intelligence, artificial intelligence at least, before they'll even come across some of these dilemmas and have to solve them for themselves? Well, yes and no. The robotic car that Wendell Wallach talked about, it wasn't, you know, self-aware. It didn't have a conscience or a consciousness, but it still had to decide, you know, I can't slam on the brakes fast enough and I have to decide what I'm going to hit. So we're talking about how we might control these future beings but maybe humans have already ceded control to the tiniest of puppeteers. 
Well, there's new research that suggests that the bacteria in your stomach are your real decision makers. Huh. Sounds like there's something to this gut instinct idea after all. It's who's controlling whom. On Big Picture Science. Okay, so now we're pondering, if we invent super smart, intelligent machines, how do we keep them under control? Humans want to maintain control. But there are some fundamental ways in which we may not be in control ourselves, at least not in our own control, like every time we snack on a cookie. It turns out that you may be driven to think about having that cookie by your stomach, or rather with the bugs in your stomach. Microbes are by far the most populous type of life on the planet, vastly outnumbering humans or any other species. Now, you might associate microbes with germs and with being sick, and they can make you ill but you would be in poorer health without bacteria on you and in you. Microbes in your stomach, for example, help digest food. The billions of microbes that live with us collectively make up our microbiome, and we want these guys around. Unfortunately, we kill many of them off by over-sterilizing our environments and by the casual use of antibiotics. And now the latest research, it's still unfolding, but it suggests that these bugs don't just maintain our health status quo, they may have control over key aspects of human behavior. Microbes that live in your stomach communicate with your brain by what's called the vagus nerve. And what happens in vagus doesn't stay in vagus, but influences general human behavior, what you eat, and maybe even how you feel. The microbes, in other words, may be tiny puppeteers controlling you. One of the scientists on the forefront of this emerging research into human-microbe cooperation is Athena Actippus, a cooperation theorist at Arizona State University. It does suggest that we might be controlled by our guts more than we think. (laughs) So literally, our gut instinct might be borne out by science. Yeah, and yeah, it sort of raises the question of like, you know, if we have a a gut feeling, is that our instincts or is that the, you know, survival and reproductive instincts of the microbes in our guts? I want to talk in detail about how this works, but let's meet the the puppet masters as it were. This is our the microbiome that makes up our gut. These are bacteria. Yeah, so our guts are filled with many, many different species of bacteria and yeast and viruses, and it's just a whole ecosystem in there. Well, let's examine the role that these bacteria play, and one way that scientists have figured out what they might be doing is what happens when we don't have them. So in some studies that have been done in germ-free mice, I understand, The cravings for sugar will go up when you don't have bacteria. Your stress levels might go up, at least it does in in these mice, when you don't have bacteria. What's going on? You know, that is a really intriguing set of findings that you just spoke about. And it's not my primary research, but my understanding of it is that when mice are reared without their normal gut microbes, they have quite altered eating preferences and in the direction of what we would consider less healthy eating preferences. If you don't have these bacteria, you might eat more sweets, but if you have healthy gastrointestinal bacteria, you might eat fewer Yeah. So, you know, I think that the big picture that I take out of those studies that you mentioned and also some of the other studies that we um, reviewed in our recent paper is that 
there's something about having a diverse and correctly balanced microbiome or at least reasonably balanced microbiome that does lead to eating behaviors that seem more um, normal and healthy. Well, Athena, give an example, please, from your research of the sort of bacteria you are looking at and how they might be manipulating and controlling our brains. What do what do these bacteria want? Yeah, well, so, you know, my work is in cooperation theory, and I use sort of evolutionary biology and a whole bunch of tools to try to understand when you have cooperation, when you have conflict in systems. And so what I've been doing and, you know, with some of my collaborators is trying to understand what are the selection pressures that microbes face in our guts and what are the selection pressures on humans and other hosts of microbes and to what extent are those interests aligned and to what extent are they not and how might that help us understand what is going on in that really interesting interaction between the microbes in our guts and our brains. So what sort of evolutionary pressures have come upon these little bugs to get us to do something for their benefit? And could you give us a couple of examples? Yeah, sure. So first of all, you know, if we just take a minute and think about it from the perspective of our gut microbes, which you know, we don't often do, but you know, they're they're sitting in there and they're, you know, completely relying on us for their survival and reproduction. Now, if you if you take that perspective, all of a sudden it becomes clear that microbes are going to be under selective pressure to do things to the host that lead to greater flow of the resources that they are dependent on. So if I'm a microbe that specializes on seaweed, if I can induce my host to consume more seaweed, I'm more likely to survive and reproduce. Well, so why don't I have cravings for seaweed regularly. <laughs> I, it probably depends on how often you eat seaweed, right? So if you eat a lot of seaweed, you're going to be providing resources that will cultivate those microbes. W wait a minute. So you're saying that those microbes are there anyway in our guts. And if we eat seaweed, then they proliferate and they want more seaweed. But if we eat chocolate, for example, the the chocolate-consuming bacteria crave more chocolate? It's <laughs> Is that the way the relationship works? So, you know, coming from the sort of evolutionary perspective, that's sort of what we would predict. Um, now, whether those microbes exist in your gut already. So, you know, if you don't eat a lot of seaweed, maybe you don't really have seaweed specializing microbes yet. Um, but if you eat it regularly, then you may cultivate a population of seaweed-loving microbes. From where? Where do they come from? You know, they can come from a lot of different places. So, you know, certainly through contact with other people. So let's say you go to a Japanese restaurant and eat seaweed there, and you're eating seaweed with people who eat seaweed all the time. Well, it may be that that would facilitate transmission of those seaweed specialists, for example. Does this suggest, though, that we could manipulate our own health by eating healthy food and hoping to acquire the corresponding bacteria or the relevant bacteria, and we could transform our diets that way because then the bacteria would be working for us and getting us to crave healthy foods. Well, you know, I think that's a really interesting and very optimistic possibility. And from the sort of evolutionary analysis, it suggests that that is 
a viable possibility. Athena, I know that you're being careful in your answers because much of this research is unfolding now. That's right. But could you give an example of maybe more an extreme example of behavior that scientists might be considering is controlled by bacteria in our stomachs? Yeah, so one possibility that research on mammals suggests, um, maybe also the case in humans, is that microbes may be manipulating our brains through signaling via the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is sort of the superhighway between all of the nerves that are in our gut and between our brains. And by changing the signaling on the vagus nerve, those microbes might actually be able to affect our anxiety levels, um, which, you know, we know that anxiety is associated with different kinds of eating behaviors in humans. So I think that's a really intriguing possibility. So they could raise our anxiety and possibly lower it? Possibly. And then there's also uh, a couple of other things that microbes can potentially do, which is actually changing the taste receptors that we have. I think this is a really fascinating possibility because it suggests that microbes might be not just sort of messing with the signaling along our existing nervous system, but potentially changing our perception. Could you give us an example of how our taste receptors might change and why? So you could imagine a situation where Altering the perception of taste would change the amount of, for example, sugar that one might consume. So say you have a gut microbe that's dependent on easy carbohydrate sugar. Altering the perception of taste could then lead to higher sugar consumption. So if you, for example, make the taste receptors less sensitive or you um, have fewer of them, then you might actually need to take more sugar in in order to stimulate them to the threshold level. I wonder if you could explain more about the process by which these bacteria communicate with our brain. Now, you spoke about the vagus nerve, and this is the nerve that runs from the brain down into our gut. In fact, sometimes our stomach is referred to as the second brain. Could you talk more about that communication system between our, our stomachs and our and our brains? Yeah, so the vagus nerve, it goes you know, from the gut, which, um, like you said, this has been called our second brain. And uh, that whole system of nerves is called the enteric nervous system. It then goes into the vagus nerve, up into our brain, and goes in through the pons. And so that's one of the ways that microbes may be communicating with our brain and interacting with our nervous system. And they're doing it by sending out little bursts of ne neurochemicals? Yeah, so there's two ways that they may be doing it. So one is actually producing factors that affect neurotransmission and then directly affecting the vagus and signaling to the brain that way. Um, and But they also may be producing factors that diffuse through the blood and affect us more systemically. So there's multiple potential pathways. And all of those could be used for altering our reward systems. And also, you know, we shouldn't neglect the possibility that they may be producing toxins to manipulate us. So making us feel uneasy or nauseous or other negative emotions that could affect our eating behavior. 
if the vagus nerve works in one direction, in that uh, the bacteria <laughs> let it be known what they would like uh, to be served that afternoon, can it work in the other direction? Could you somehow use your brain or your thoughts to control what is happening down in your stomach? Yeah, you know, that's a, a great question, actually, because you know, if we do think of it from the perspective of um, the microbes kind of hijacking our vagus nerve, possibly making us feel anxious. You know, there's a lot of work on sort of emotional eating and people eating when they're feeling down or when they're feeling uneasy, when they're feeling anxious. So, you know, maybe, and here I'm speculating, one potential way to reduce cravings for unhealthy foods would be simply to increase the tone in your vagus nerve by taking some deep breaths, having a, you know, fun conversation with someone, um, engaging yourself in, you know, a yoga class, something that, that improves vagal tone. Okay. Vagus nerve workouts. There you go. <laughs> and so, Athena, how is your stomach right now? How would you describe the sensations in your own gut? Uh, you know, I'm just sort of getting the first glimmers of hunger, so... So there's some bacteria in there, and they crave what, do you think? Well, you know, I think that they're craving some papaya right now. So <laughs> Okay. So you have the papaya-loving bacteria <laughs> in your stomach. Well, Athena Actippus, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Athena Actippus is a cooperation theorist at Arizona State University and the Director of Human and Social Evolution at the Center for Evolution and Cancer at the University of California, San Francisco. Well, as a cerebral species, we figure there's nothing on Earth as complex as, as a brain. And yet, evolution, which is, after all, bottom-up engineering, it's produced mushrooms, it's produced microbes that can lead brains to bizarre behavior like you lead a horse to water. We heard just now about the microbes that are doing that. Um, and earlier it was the mushrooms, the fungus that can take over the brain of an ant. And both of these are examples of uh, biology controlling other biology. And then we also heard examples of humans creating machines that may or may not slip from our control one yeah, day. Isn't it ironic? I mean, you know, we're going to be in the position of those microbes, of those fungi, hoping to figure out how we can control future mechanical behavior, right? Except that's not a perfect parallel because in those cases, they control them very well. Yes, we may lose control. <laughs> yeah, we may become the ants. <laughs> I think so because honestly, you know, you can say we hope for moral behavior in our mechanical successors, but I think it's going to be a very big challenge. That's it for our show. Thanks to a production team that controls our quality control. Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists investigate the nature and prevalence of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to who's controlling whom. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, you can seize control over the complete Big Picture Science archive, or at least listen to it, on our website, bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because, well, you can control knobs, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know that you like the show. 
Oh, and uh, have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion? Throw in some faint praise and then email it all to bigpicturescience at SETI.org. All right, let's go with Chinese food. I found tiny food. <sighs> Ethiopian fare. Easy. Oh, there. Pizza. What, what about pizza? I found 12 pizza places near you. Yes. <laughs> 